Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. And I'm Aura Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The era of the reusable rocket is already here. They launch their cargo spacewards and then return to base. Now, that same idea is showing up in air defense. If the kind of missile you'd fire at a drone misses the mark, it can just come back. And islands of wet wipes and cheese-flavored ice cream, Birkenstocks boxing, the things that excite me, lighter, fun stories that spice up our show. These are a few of my favorite thirds. But first. My colleague Wendemann von Bredo and I met Alice Weidel in her office. And of course, Alice Weidel is the co-leader of the Alternative for Germany party, or AFD, which is the furthest to the right of Germany's seven main political parties. Max Rodenbeck is The Economist's Berlin bureau chief. Her office overlooks the German parliament. It also overlooks a giant park in the middle of Berlin, the Tiergarten, which is kind of brown and rusty in midwinter. And she herself looked very, very neat with pulled back blonde hair and dressed in a very simple crisp suit and white trainers. She looked rather queenly as she came into the room. Now, what made you want to speak with Alice Weidel? Well, she's a person who's really beginning to shape German politics in a big way. She's the co-head of the AFD party, a party that was launched in 2013. And it currently only has 78 out of 736 of the MPs in the German parliament, the Bundestag. So it's less than a tenth. It doesn't control any of Germany's 16 states as a government, and it only manages a couple of very small little municipal governments. So it doesn't look that important. And also it's come under scrutiny. Some of the extremist views of its members have landed different branches of the AFD under surveillance by the Federal Office for Protection of the Constitution, which is a kind of German FBI. So a majority of Germans say they would never vote for the AFD. But Alice Weidel's entry into the party seems to have given it a boost of energy. She worked for the party for four years before getting sucked into the big national elections in 2017 and then was boosted to the leadership in 22. But she spent four or five years as a member of parliament before then. In the two years since Ms. Weidel became party leader, the national voting intentions, that is, the people who say they would vote for the AFD, have doubled from under 10% to well over 20% in Germany. And recent polls also suggest that Ms. Weidel is personally popular. She's more popular than Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor. And, you know, this is important because all across Europe, the similar kinds of right-wing populist parties have been gaining ground 
in many places. Most recent was the election in the Netherlands last month, but also Italy and Sweden have both seen hard right parties that were once seen as pariahs in those countries have come to power lately. So the question we wanted to answer with this interview was, is Germany next? And with several important elections coming up in the coming year, including one for the European Parliament and also three German state elections, in all of which Alice Weidel's party looks like it's going to do very well, it seems that her face is one that's going to become a lot more familiar internationally. And what were your impressions of her as an individual? Well, in a word, she's a paradox. You know, she's a woman in a party that is really very heavily male-dominated. And she's also different because she's a co-chair of her party, but her partner as co-chair reflects the voting base of the AFD a bit better because he comes from former East Germany, where the party is very strong. And he's also very much working class. He speaks with a working class accent. And Alice Weidel, by contrast, she's from the West. She comes from a wealthy background. She has a PhD in economics. She lives primarily in Switzerland. She worked for Goldman Sachs in the past. She worked for Allianz, a giant insurance company. But also her personal life, she's openly gay. She and her partner, they're raising two sons together. And Alice Weidel herself describes her partner as extremely liberal and says that it hasn't been easy to reconcile their views. But even so, her wife is very supportive. And aside from who she is as a person, what do her suggested policies look like? Her biggest call is really for Germany to have secure borders. And Vital says most of Germany's problems can be traced back to what she describes as deeply irresponsible immigration policies. And she points in particular at the former German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who was Chancellor of Germany for 16 years up until 2021, and who welcomed in 2016 a big influx of refugees from the Syrian civil war. And what she says is that Merkel has opened the corridor to destroy this country. Weidel also speaks a great deal about the rise in crime associated with immigration, as she alleges. Weidel says that she's for a reasonable and logical immigration policy, but she says all of the refugees that have come into Germany have scared away qualified immigrants. And she's particularly critical of Muslim immigrants. As she says, many of them come from violent contexts. She also faults immigrants for Germany's poor showing in a recent PISA study that compares education outcomes across different countries. Now, Max, do her complaints and her prescriptions to address the country's problems stack up? Not at all. I mean, of course it's true that immigration has gone up in Germany. And the fact is that right now, about one in four of Germany's 85 million people have some kind of immigration background. But if you look at actual police records, they show that rather than rising following the big surge in the number of Syrian refugees in 2016, the country's overall crime rate actually dropped steeply from 2016 until 2021. And if you look at the European rankings of public safety, Germany is in the middle of the pack. It's not particularly crime-ridden. And then regarding education, it's true that foreigners make up a growing proportion of school children in Germany. And it's true that they tend to score lower than native Germans in tests. But the same 
PISA study with its results from all over the world showed that in neighboring countries, there is less difference in scores between immigrant students and native ones. And for example, in the UK, immigrants actually scored higher by some of the PISA tests than native-born Britons. And what all this suggests is that Germany's problem has probably more to do with its school system and not with the particular ethnicity of students. Now, if her policies don't seem to match up with the evidence, then what do you think is driving Weidel and her party's popularity in Germany? You know, a bit of self-pity, alarmism, insinuations against foreigners and nationalism. It plays out well, not only to the base of the AFD party, but to a growing number of other Germans. Weidel speaks, for example, about this loss of what she calls Leitkultur, or leading culture. Basically, she's saying that Germans no longer know what they stand for. She says that students, for example, are taught so much about the Third Reich to feel guilty about the Nazi era, but they're not told about where Germany came from and what they should be proud of. A lot of this talk about culture is actually playing on the tensions and fears that exist in the minds of Germans, but also among Europeans more broadly. People are frightened by changes in society that they've seen, including a very visible rise in the number of immigrants, but also several years of crisis. I mean, we've had the COVID crisis, followed by high inflation, followed by the Ukraine war, plus an energy crunch. So, you know, there are a lot of reasons why people feel anxious, and the AFD is kind of cleaning up on those feelings and gathering a lot of strength. So what comes next for Alice Weidel and the AFD? Well, all this confusion and anger among the German public will have a chance to express itself in the elections that are coming in 2024, both for the European Parliament in June and in September, when the German states of Brandenburg and Saxony and Thuringia, all three of them, head to the polls. And in all three of those states, they're all in eastern Germany, the AFD is now the leading party. So, you know, even though a lot of Germans view the AFD as a dangerous, anti-democratic party, even some call it fascist, by the next election for Germany's national parliament, which is going to be in 2025, it wouldn't be a bad bet to think that Ms. Weidel and her co-leader, they could be a serious force to be reckoned with. Max, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Ori, for having me. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Remember the Looney Tunes cartoons with Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner? The Coyote had all the Acme gadgets and gizmos. Meep, meep. But he could never quite catch his prey. That story has uh, inspired another chase, less comical, more lethal. A new range of reusable missiles called Roadrunner will soon enter the battlefield. In the spirit of the eponymous cartoon character, the startup behind Roadrunner hopes to outwit and outrun established defense industry players. <laughs> 
Anyone who's looking at the Middle East will see that there's huge numbers of drones flying about. They've been hitting American ships, they've been hitting tankers, they've been striking American troops in Iraq and Syria. And there's now a huge effort by many countries to try to work out how do we shoot these things down? Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defense editor. There are now some new defense technology companies that are trying to answer that question by challenging the big incumbents in their own way. And one company uh, that's doing that has come out with this thing called Roadrunner. What is it? Roadrunner is a system that was unveiled late last month by a relatively newish company called Anduril. It's based in California. The name, some of you will have realized, is a Lord of the Rings reference. And it was founded by a guy called Palmer Lucky. He created Oculus. It's a virtual reality system that Facebook bought for $2 billion. So this is a complete change of field for him. And what they claim is that Roadrunner is far superior to existing counter-drone systems. It sounds like Silicon Valley hype, and there probably is some hype in there, but there are also some quite interesting things about the way that this system works. So how does it work? At heart, Jason, this is a little jet-powered projectile, and it shoots out of a box and flies up into the air. It's got two, I think, main tricks. One of them is that the payload, the bit on top, is changeable. So you can put a little sensor package on it to go take pictures of stuff, for example, or you can put a high-explosive warhead on it, and then it can take out incoming drones. That is part one. The second and perhaps more interesting part is that it is reusable. So you can send it up, and if it isn't needed, it can land and come back down. And that isn't revolutionary. There's a lot of different munitions on the market today that can land and come back. But this is probably one of the first ones that's designed for air defense. Why does that being able to come back part matter, though? If you think about missile defense, let's take the example from Israel. You may have seen Israel's Iron Dome system taking out Hamas rockets. Those kind of systems typically need to fire at least two interceptor missiles per incoming threat, right? To have a reasonably good probability of taking it down. And the same is true of big American systems like the Patriot missile defense system being used by Ukraine. If the first interceptor takes out the incoming threat, the second one is wasted. It's lost. You can't get it back down and use it again. The thing about Roadrunner is what you could do in theory is send up lots of different interceptors. And if you only needed one to take out the threat, or in fact, it turns out you didn't need to take it down, you can collect all the rest, reuse them and save all the money. Well, if the initial outlay is itself economical, how much do these things cost? And I think that's the key. Right now, these are not running at high production. That makes them more expensive. And the figure that Anderil gives is that they will cost in the low six figures per unit. If you compare that to systems like Coyote, obviously, given the name, Coyote is the obvious competitor. That's built by a company called RTX, which was formerly called Raytheon. That also has a modular payload. You can swap the top off for different things. And it also takes out drones. That costs around $100,000. So it isn't clear right now that this is significantly cheaper than competing systems. And the problem in judging this, Jason, is that all these different systems have slightly different tasks. So, for instance, there's a Norwegian-American system called NASMS, which can take out much bigger cruise missiles. That is being used by Ukraine. It's defending Kiev. It's a really important system. The interceptors in that 
are approximately $400,000. So that's a bit more expensive than Roadrunner. But on the other hand, it can take out much bigger drones that Roadrunner might not be able to. So the economics of these systems are very, very complicated to work out. But it really depends on what kind of niche you are occupying, what kind of drone you were trying to take out. Using these things on a tiny little quadcopter fired by Hamas, that's not going to be economical. But if this can take out a big Iranian-made drone of the kind that the Russians are firing, that could be much more useful. But as you're describing the competition here, you're describing both things that take out drones and things that take out missiles. Those are very similar jobs, very different jobs. Jason, I think the critical point here is that the boundary between high-end drones and low-end cruise missiles is fundamentally becoming blurred. If you look at the Iranian Shahed-136 that is being fired at Kiev even in the last few days, it's a drone in the sense that it looks a bit like an aircraft, it's jet-powered, but it's a missile in the sense that it goes and plows into something. So fundamentally, we are seeing this gray area develop in which high-end drones are achieving levels of speed, maneuverability, and capability that would previously only have been achievable by what we would have called cruise missiles. And I think that kind of mentally begins to tax our imagination in this area. But seemingly not the imaginations of these scrappy new companies that are challenging the incumbents that you mentioned. You have an American defense industry that is dominated by a relatively small number of big primes, the companies that you you know people probably know, Lockheed Martin, RTX, formerly Raytheon, Boeing, these kind of big, big firms that have been the stalwarts of producing American jets, American rocket systems, that kind of thing. What you have is a new breed of often artificial intelligence-focused companies, but also companies building hardware like Anduril that are saying, we need to challenge these lazy incumbents. We need to challenge them and we need to disrupt this industry in the same way that SpaceX disrupted the traditional space launch industry in the United States. And you then have the old kind of defense industry establishment rolling their eyes at this saying, well, that's all well and good, but how good are you at mass producing this stuff? How much experience do you have of integrating these things across the U.S. Army? This is a culture clash between the old Pentagon establishment and a new breed of firms that is not fully proven. So far, America's Special Operations Command has bought Roadrunners, but Special Operations Command is a relatively small command. It buys in relatively small numbers, and it has relatively niche needs. So, Right now, I think it's important to note the jury is out. These firms, they have not yet proven themselves at scale. Shashank, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, as always, Jason. Firms like Anduril are doing some innovating in defense hardware, but also represent a force for change in the world of defense procurement. After decades of bloated so-called cost-plus contracts for weapons, scrappy new firms are doing their free market thing and rattling the giant contractors who have dominated the industry. My colleagues on Money Talks, our subscriber-only weekly show on business and the markets, took a deep dive on that. Have a listen. What's that? You're not a subscriber to Economist Podcasts Plus? What a great time to change that. Head to the show notes, sign up, dig in. Well, all right, we find ourselves at the end of another year, one of a fairly brutal news agenda, it must be said. How's it been for you? You know what? It's been good. Obviously, it's been my first year in the chair. It's been fun, not just because I've had a great co-host, but I've actually enjoyed it. 
Good. Well, listen, we're aware that lots of the audience really enjoyed the third segments of the show, the quirky ones. And so as a bit of fun here, we're going to run through some of our favorites from the year. Yep. Great idea. Let's do it. Now, we've only got time to play out clips from a couple each, but did you have any sort of also ran some honorable mentions? Yeah, a couple honorable mentions from me. I tried really hard to not choose stories that I did, but obviously my Birkenstock story, because I'm a fashion girly and I was right that Birkenstocks have become cool again, not just because of Barbie. No, that has actually affected my Christmas buying agenda as it goes. I'm so proud of you. You're becoming a fashion girly too, Jason. Um, (laughs) And my mom also was a real fan of the laughing gas third, which actually made me think, what on earth was she getting up to in her youth? Questions to be posed perhaps around the Christmas dinner table. (laughs) For my part, I was harking back to our trip to Wet Wipe Island on the Thames. We almost made it there. Still a repugnant idea. I enjoyed influencer boxing because I'm I'm not hugely into people beating the crap out of each other. But when it's internet influencers, I can kind of get on board. But I think we're going to play you some clips from our top two thirds. Okay, so first up, a personal favorite for me was the language learning segment with Lane Green mostly because I could finally teach the world how to properly say my name. I'm Yoruba, and our language is very musical, and it depends on lots of intonations, which is probably why English speakers really struggle to say my name correctly anyway. Okay, can you say it correctly for me and say how you would say it incorrectly? Okay, so Ore is my name. My full name is Ore Oluwa, and there's a dot under the O and a dot under the E to show that it is Ore and not Ore, and there's an accent on the U and the A to show that it goes ore oluwa, goes up and down. Excellent. I wouldn't have known that, and it might take me a little while to get it perfectly. So if I get it wrong, uh, do let me know. I know. I think hard about it every time I say it because I really don't want to be one of the people getting it wrong. I don't want to be on the wrong side of that 50%. For my part, a favorite was about the astonishing difference between, well, the world's big cars and the world's little cars. Cars tell you a lot about the people that drive them but also the countries that build them. For example, Europe's best-selling car last year was the tiny Peugeot 208. On the other hand, America's best-selling vehicle last year was the massive Ford F-150 truck. Placing the two of them together makes for quite the juxtaposition. The F-150 weighs over two tons, twice as much as the lithe Peugeot. And the driver in the American pickup truck so it's a half meter higher than the tarmac-scraping Frenchman in his family compact. And forget the flatbed attached to the back of the Ford, its interior alone feels roomier than the entire Peugeot. When it comes to motoring, Europeans long felt that size did not matter. See, I wonder if Stanley there has actually ever driven a big F-150 truck. It is, in its way, empowering, but let's leave that there. Well, I can't even drive, so I'll leave that to you guys. My next favorite segment was about ice cream. I managed to find an excuse for The Economist to buy me ice cream, and it tasted like trash. I can taste cheese. Oh, that is so bad. I can taste cheese and more salt. It tastes like a sandwich. It tastes as if someone has made a sandwich into ice cream. It is cheesy. I think I just got a chunk of cheese and cream in my mouth. Give us a spoon. It could be worse. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Disgusting. 
Now, on the topic of finding an excuse to do something for work that you might otherwise do for fun, I had perhaps my most fun for a third segment, mixing some drinks. So today I'm using Penderin, which is a fairly light-bodied, actually a Welsh, not a Scotch whiskey. For the vermouth, I've got Carpino Classico pretty straight down the line. And for the bitters, because of some advice I got long ago from a different book, Patience. Now, the thing that's really handy about this book is a chapter called Birds of a Feather. Really a series of tables that shows you how all these classic drinks you've heard of are actually connected. It makes it really easy to figure out how to make a drink that's very like one you already know, but that you've never made before. You're half of a Rob Roy, sir. Why, thank you. Is that an honorable thing to do to a single malt? I'll allow it. (laughs) That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Are you still trying to do last-minute Christmas shopping? Yeah, don't worry, me too. Why not give the gift of knowledge? For a limited time, you can get a 30% discount on all gift subscriptions to our print and digital editions, which of course includes complete podcast access as well. Just follow the link in our show notes for more. Enjoy, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.